Berkshire is back and Campbell's keeps it saucy. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. How are you today, Jason? Hey, doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. Jason, it was a Berkshire weekend. It wasn't the Berkshire weekend because that's in the (laughs) spring. That's, you know, when everyone goes to Omaha. But we did get the second quarter results always on a Saturday. Always pretty pretty low key. You just you just get the basics there. I mean, a lot of basics. But this was strong. This was a nice boost in net income up to nearly thirty six billion. Last quarter wasn't so great. Is Buffett's back, right? I mean, he, Buffett's never gone. But Buffett's back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say. I mean, he kind of went through a little bit of a lull over the last several years, particularly the last few years, as as we've seen right, right tech take take over so much of the conversation in regard to investing and. Now it's AI, and and it's easy to kind of forget about that old boring business model of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, but listen, I mean, you know, money money is money, right? And and they certainly do a very good job of making it over long stretches of time. I mean, in regard to the actual business, you know, I think they're benefiting from from this interest rate environment, right? We saw insurance yeah. underwriting they they record a seventy four percent increase, um, benefiting. From from those higher interest rates, along with uh, lower lower catastrophic losses, um, they they did see a little weakness in railroad, which is again to be expected. Right. But I think when you look at the business overall, I mean this this is just the quintessential long term buy to hold investment, right? You, I would say this is probably as close to buy and hold as you could get. And for those who are wondering what the difference is, I mean, I just like to say buy to hold because I think buy and hold sort of implies. You just sort of buy it, set it, and forget it. You always need to keep track of what you own and understand what's going on with them. So with Berkshire Hathaway, I don't think it requires quite as much micromanagement. But I mean, when you look back to how the stock has performed over the last decade, it's up 205 percent versus the market's 165 percent. If you go back to 1965, it's recorded a compounded 19 percent, 19.8 percent. It's up 19.8% annually versus 9.9% for the S&P 500. So, generally speaking, I mean, you've got some ebbs and flows with this business, but when you when you look at it through that longer-term lens, his strategy is is a bit more clear and, and, and obviously it's working very well. Yeah, and you never want to sell based on one earnings report if as yeah. long as you know the thesis is solid. And with Berkshire, it always is. One of the things I thought was interesting about this is that you mentioned strong underwriting with, with Geico. Made made a big difference here. I mean, we've seen this with companies like Kinsale Capitals. Strong underwriting in insurance is it seems to me to be a bit of an art and a science, but it definitely pays off. It is it is a very difficult business. I think that's you know we've seen over the last few years new businesses coming in to try to disrupt the insurance industry. I think Lemonade stands out as one, and, and yeah. I'm not criticizing Lemonade because I think there is potential with a business like that. But I think what Lemonade demonstrated is that insurance is really hard. I mean, writing that that book is really difficult. You have to have some understanding of the markets and the risks. I mean, the actuarials that go into it. I mean, it is just a very difficult business, and they have a long, long history um, of, of doing it very well. It's one of those things that that if you if you have a philosophy, if you have a process in place and it's working, uh, you stick with it. You keep it going. You can do it very well. But insurance is just a really difficult business to to, to do well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and to do well over time. Well, there was talk from analysts over the weekend that you know Berkshire is sitting on a lot of cash, right? Uh, yeah. Over 147 billion. So some analysts are saying, well, that means Buffett's not seeing opportunities. The, the market's overheated. Do you agree with that? 
Um, I think in his world, it makes a lot a lot of sense. I mean, you can see there are a lot of quality businesses out there, and I mean, this is this is an exercise I think we all go through every quarter. Is we learn of Berkshire's cash hoard, and then we sort of dream about what what's the ideal Berkshire has <laughs> acquisition this quarter. Um, I think there are a lot of businesses out there that he would love to own. Uh, I, I do think that they are not at valuations that really work for him, though, and so he is uh, patient, if nothing else. And and so for him, I mean, listen, he continues to buy treasuries, right? He's not concerned with that Fitch downgrade whatsoever. He's holding yeah. close to hundred billion dollars in treasuries today, and and has expressed his intent to keep to keep buying them because essentially, I mean, that's pretty much risk free money that he can keep on bringing in for the business. Um, and when you have a cash pile that large, I mean, scale really does make a big difference. Um, but, but yeah, I think valuations are just in a tough place right now. They seem high relative to the uncertainty that persists in the market in, in, in the economy right now. And then you add to that, I think what's certain to be a bonkers election year coming up next year. I mean, any which way you cut it, I think it's going to be nutty. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty that, that really comes from that. I, I feel like maybe he's just, you know, they say, Measure twice, cut once. I think he's probably measuring even more than twice here before he makes any cuts at all. I think he's just being very thoughtful about how he puts his capital to work, which to me makes a lot of sense in this in this current state. Yeah, and I've heard this called kind of a sensitive bull market or a tentative bull market. There's definitely a feeling right now that this bull market is sort of like on on colt legs. Yeah, yeah. It just it, it, again, it kind of goes back to. A lot of conflicting data, and you know, we've been talking for several quarters now. Recession, recession, recession. It's not really materialized, so to speak, but you hear people talk about rolling recession. It's just, it's been a very awkward time um, over the last several years, uh, which just just it, it's difficult to make decisions when when uncertainty is so high. Yeah, and one of the things I think contributes to uncertainty right now is is real estate and what's happening with loans coming due in office and things like that. So I always look at Berkshire's real estate holdings. Nothing much to see on the manufactured and site-built home uh, home loan side. About 97% of those are current, so I'm I'm not too worried about that. But I'm also interested in, and not worried by, but the largest commercial real estate loan they have. That's the Seritage Growth Properties. So that's the REIT that uh, Eddie Lampert created that holds a lot of those former Sears properties. They were going to renovate those. That was going to be the future of the company. It's actually the other way now, where they're just it seems like they're unloading them. Uh, Berkshire invested heavily here. Um, unpaid balance of around 550 million. They've repaid about 1.1.05 billion since 2021. We're going to hear earnings from them tomorrow, which I'm interested in. But I feel like this this actually I was unsure for a while, but it I think it's working out. The company's speeding up selling off those assets. They're paying things off. They're paying ahead of time. Is, was this did this turn out to be a smart move, even though it looked a little iffy at times? You got to call him Warren Soprano, right? You don't want to be skipping payments with this guy. I don't think. <laughs> Definitely um, not. I mean, I, the, the deal, the relationship dates back to 2018, I believe. Um, clearly, Seritage, along with everyone, has gone through um, an anomalous stretch over the last three years, particularly in real estate, um, as we see sort of. How companies are addressing this going back to office definitely feels like the narrative is is bringing more people back, and that should be good for that real estate market. Yeah. Um, but but it does also look like they they came to an extend they came to an agreement to extend through July 2025 this agreement this arrangement that they have. So it's bought Seritage some time. But I mean, by the same token, I think they realize the priority, right? When you talk about lien holders, I mean, again. I mean, this this is this is uh, 
a gentleman and a company that threw Ceritage a lot, a lot of much-needed financial aid. Um, so to me, it would be that number one priority is is making making Buffett and Berkshire whole there. And if they see also if Ceritage sees sort of things uh, improving in in that real real estate space, particularly commercial real estate, then, then all the better. Yeah. And Berkshire's always tucking a few companies under its wing. They did that with a natural gas facility in Maryland and also with Pilot Travel Centers. Was a Berkshire investment for a while, now a Berkshire subsidiary. This is the company that operates trucking centers, around 850 of them in North America. They're spending about a billion dollars to renovate some of their centers. Uh, it seems like a very Buffett business to be. Uh, it's, it's reliable. You've got a consistent income stream. They also put in a new CEO who's a long-term Buffett guy. Adam Wright seems very capable. Is, is Buffett? I feel it feels like there's a lot of uh, maybe Buffett's never exciting, but there's there's some interest in making this business. Bigger. Well, yeah. I mean, this is something where they initially invested back in 2017 with a minority investment, and I mean, you're right. This is this is just the 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 typical Buffett style investment. Right? It's easy business to understand. I mean, they're just yeah. they're selling stuff to, to people, uh, you know, consumers and truckers alike. I mean, it's a family founded and and led business, which clearly is something that he he appreciates. Um, it serves serves as really a backbone to to our nation's infrastructure and trucking. Um, and and I don't think that's poised to change anytime soon. I mean, as we see the electrification of our fleets um, ar- around the country sort of progress, that's great. That also is something that's going to take a lot of time, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's something that's going to take a long time, a long time to really implement in, in, at, at scale. Uh, so, so as it stands right now, I mean, this really seems like a very sensible uh, Berkshire-style investment. Yeah, and truckers still need to uh, eat and sleep, even if they're even if their uh, trucks are, are going longer. I don't, I, I don't think autonomous trucking is is you know is going to happen tomorrow. No, nope, definitely not. No. So we know about the biggest Berkshire investments. So there's Amex, there's Apple, of course, very famously Apple, Bank of America, Coca-Cola, and Chevron. But they're adding to another company I found kind of surprising, which is Kraft Heinz. Stock's down around 40% in the past five years. Their their uh, recent uh, earnings only expecting sales growth of four to six percent. You do get a good dividend here. Uh, is is that what Buffett sees here, or is this? Does he feel like it's maybe? I mean, it's hard to speculate what he's thinking, but but why why Kraft Heinz? Well, I, so I mean, he obviously the the initial investment they own I think around twenty six, a little bit more than twenty six percent of the company today, yeah. um, and this to me is one that. I, I, you know, he he went into this one. I think his opinion probably has changed on the business a little bit, right? He he went into this investment thinking that brand, that portfolio of brands, was probably a little bit stronger than it than it is. And I think he said as much, right? I mean, he said that you know there there were some brands in there that maybe weren't as resilient or as strong as he originally anticipated. Yeah. But that's not all of them. I mean, it is still a portfolio with a number of strong brands. Now, now to your point, I mean, it is a business. It's not recording, uh, you know. Really, very impressive growth, right? I mean, if you look at the five-year compound annual growth rate there on the revenue side, just just 0.7 percent. Now, three-year is a little bit better at 2.7 percent. So that could indicate that maybe things are improving a little bit. It is cash flow positive. The coverage ratio is no issue there. They can cover the debt that they owe. The the dividend should be safe for the time being. And so I do think you're right there. The dividend is at least something. That gives him uh, more comfort in being patient. Mm. Um, I would encourage anyone listening 
go back to Berkshire's most recent annual letter, right? You can just Google Berkshire letters, it'll take you right to it. Um, read in that letter, there's a section in that letter called The Secret Sauce. And I'll read an excerpt from that. It says, in August 1994, yes, 1994, Berkshire completed its seven-year purchase of the 400 million shares of Coca-Cola we now own. The total cost was $1.3 billion, then a very meaningful sum at Berkshire. The cash dividend we received from Coke in 1994 was $75 million. By 2022, the dividend had increased to $704 million. Growth occurred every year, just as certain as birthdays. All Charlie and I were required to do was cash Coke's quarterly dividend checks. We expect that those checks are highly likely to grow. And then he closes, I'd imagine if Heinz demonstrates that it's a bit more impaired. I'm sorry, I would say that if, if I would say I'd imagine that if Heinz demonstrates down the road here that it's a bit more impaired, Right. If we do see that growth is really kind of not where he thought it would be, then he may revisit it. Mm. I think as it stands right now, that dividend gives him a little bit of a reason to be patient. But I'd, I'd say this is also one that's probably on his list to keep an eye on. Yeah, and he loves he loves great brands, and I would not bet against the mac and cheese. You <laughs> you kind of teed me up because you said sauce, and I think of ah. you as our sauce guy. And on Friday you talked about mustard skittles. Today we're going to talk about another kind of flavor, spaghetti sauce. So Campbell's announced they're buying Sobos brands, which if you haven't heard of, yeah, me neither. But that's the company behind Rouse, which I have heard of, and Michelangelo's, which is those. Uh, Frozen Italian dinners and also Nusi yogurt. One of those things is not like the other. Uh, they're paying $2.3 billion. It seems like it's going to round out some of their prepared meal segments. It goes in their meals and beverages segment. Do you like the deal and do you like the sauce? Well, so I, yeah, the deal I think makes sense. I mean, you made a point in, in uh, our discussion beforehand that it really does seem like. This is more about getting the the Rouse brand right. I mean, the other was uh, Michelangelo and and the the new the what is it new Nusa Nusa, Nusa yogurt. yogurt. Yeah, I, I, those are those are kind of freebies, I guess. I mean, hopefully they do well, but I don't know. That's really what Campbell wanted from this deal. I mean, if you look at the company itself, it's a very recent IPO from August 2021. Twenty three dollars per share in cash. That represents a total enterprise value of around two point seven billion dollars. Now, Campbell's going to issue some debt to get this done. Right. That's not a problem. The coverage ratio that there today is at seven, and that essentially is just telling you. The the net interest expense versus the operating income the company is bringing in. Right. Pretty reliable business there in Campbell's and the consumer goods that they're sending. So I think they can afford this with no problem. Uh, the the trouble though, I mean, with with Campbell, it's it's you know these consumer goods companies that growth starts slowing down, then you have to kind of figure out how how to go from there. What's the next act, right? I mean, if you look at the track record, this has not been a very good investment. I mean, from a three, five, ten-year timeline, like it's not—it's not an investment that's beaten the market. I mean, I think investors have made a little money from it, but it's nothing to write home about. Uh, but generally speaking, it does make sense if they're looking to expand their portfolio and figure out a way to stoke growth. Uh, we see it all the time. Then it really just boils down to the price that they're paying, and in this case, it seems at least fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the penetration of Rouse sauce, I found in the in the the 10K. The household penetration of Rouse sauce has increased from 1.3% in the 52 weeks ended January 3, 2016, to 11.9% in the 52 weeks ended December 25, 2022. So clearly, the Rouse brand is growing. Yeah. Um, 
a little bit. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not it's not impressive growth by any means, but it's gaining some share, and I think that's encouraging. Uh, plugging it into into the Campbell's uh, business model there would likely give them um, exceptionally greater distribution there, which which could have a, a nice a nice impact, and, and perhaps with the other brands as well. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Yeah, it's a little bit of a um, it's a little more expensive than some of the other brands that that you might see on the shelf. I think, which is an interesting move for Campbell's to see if they're going to keep that price premium. I think so, and I, I mean, I can't speak to the sauce. I don't actually know that I've ever had it personally. Um, I'm a little bit of a sauce snob, maybe Deidre. I mean, I, I, I suspected you might admit, be. I'm going to go ahead and admit this. I make my own sauce. I mean, of course I am. You do. <laughs> I am. I am a Cento San Marzano tomato guy. I mean, I feel like anytime I'm going to make pizza or pasta, I mean, to me, I would much rather just start with those tomatoes and season it however I like it. Um, I find that those those jarred and canned sauces just are too sweet for me. It feels like they add a lot of sugar to them that just takes away from the flavor of the sauces. But you can't beat the convenience. They're certainly very convenient. It's not like they're bad. I, if, if it had my yeah. druthers, I mean, I would I would make my own. But if I'm if I'm caught in a pinch, maybe I'll have to give that rouse sauce a try. <laughs> Sounds like you're inviting me over to dinner. Well, thank thank you for your time today, Jason. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.